with me this morning to Psalm 42, and we are going to look at the flow of thought that moves from Psalm 42 through Psalm 48. And uh, if you were with us last night, just to review briefly, you know that uh, I considered a number of features of the Psalter that would suggest that we should approach the Psalter as a purposefully arranged collection. And just to run through some of those again, uh, we have these doxologies at the end of each of the the books in the Psalter, like at the end of Book 1, at the end of Psalm 41, where you're turning, you can see there the last words of Psalm 41, verse 13, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. And then, in addition to the doxology, as the new book of the Psalter begins, we'll have a change in ascription of authorship. So whereas... In book one, we had 37 psalms, 37 of the 41 attributed to David. Now, as we begin book two, we meet with this psalm of the sons of Korah. And I didn't develop this too much last night, but I would suggest that in book one, in Psalms 1 through 41, we largely meet with David's suffering. And it's almost as though the Psalter is tracking with David's difficulties from the time when he was anointed as king by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16 through the time when he was established as king over Israel and Judah in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And you know that in in 2 Samuel 6, after David is anointed as king, he brings the ark into Jerusalem. And 1 Chronicles chapter 6, from like verses 31 through 38 or so, tells us of what David did once he brought the ark into Jerusalem. And one of the things that he did was he appointed the Levites, he put them in charge of the worship of the Lord at the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. And among the Levites listed there are this, one fellow is mentioned as a son of Korah. And so I'm inclined to think that whoever put the Psalter into its final form wants us to think in terms of, now David has been established as king as he's been delivered at the end of book one, and these sons of Korah come on the scene, and they are those who are uh, overseeing the worship of the Lord at the house of the Lord. And with that in mind, this will put us uh, in position to think together about Psalm 42, where this psalmist, in Psalm 42, verse 1, one of these sons of Korah, he's apparently been separated from, uh, from the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem at the temple. And so he's longing to be back in God's presence. And he says here in verse 1, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. So this psalmist is longing to be in God's presence. And I don't, I don't know if you've... Uh, I don't, I've never seen a deer do this, but I have a dog. And my dog, my, my wife will take our dog on a run... And he is thirsty, and he's really funny. He'll, he'll get, particularly in the summer when it's hot outside, he will sometimes come back into the house, and he'll just flop down in the middle of the kitchen because the, you know, the floor is nice and cool. But he also, he, he, he pants very heavily, and he's eager to get to his water bowl. And, and that's the picture here, that this man is eager to get to the Lord as a thirsty animal is for this flowing stream. And he says in verse 2, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He has in view the, the appearing before the Lord at the temple. 
He says in verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? So he's being taunted by these enemies. And that line is going to be repeated at the end of verse 10, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? And then back to verse 4, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So perhaps you you could think of something like the occasion when David brought the ark of, of the Lord into Jerusalem. And there were all these people celebrating. There were these hordes of people uh, rejoicing in the Lord. And this fellow has experienced something like that, perhaps at a, at a feast when the people made their way up to celebrate the Lord in Jerusalem. But now he's been separated from God's people and he's out of Jerusalem and he's longing to be back in God's presence and he's being taunted by his enemies. And this all brings him to say in verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And we can all identify with this kind of situation. Uh, We're discouraged. Uh, We're uh, facing many different factors and considerations. And we feel this turmoil within us. And uh, the discouragement uh, sometimes brings us to a point where we don't even want to attempt anything. And this fellow is counseling himself, and he's asking himself, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then he's locating the solution in the right place. He says in the middle of the verse there, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. In particular, I think he's longing to be restored to the presence of God with the people of God in Jerusalem so that he can worship Lead the people in worship there at the temple. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And then he says again there in verse 6, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Now, I don't want to continue to go uh, verse by verse through this psalm. Now that we've hit this refrain, I want to draw your attention to the way that it's repeated in verse 11. So he says again in verse 11, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? So he's already asked himself this, and he's already provided himself with the right solution, but he has to do it again. He has to again tell himself, there in verse 11, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. I find this encouraging because sometimes the discouragement doesn't go away after you've heard the right answer the first time. Sometimes you have to keep coming back to the right answer. You have to keep rehearsing to yourself the good news of God's salvation. You have to keep urging your soul to hope in God for you shall again praise him. Well, the second time, first time is there in verse, verse 5, second time is in verse 11, it happens again in, in chapter 43 at the end of, verse, at the end of uh, Psalm 43 in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? So that refrain is, is joining Psalms 42 and 43 together. And in, in a way, 
the individual who is praying this in Psalms 42 and 43 gets broadened out to the believing community in chapter 44. And uh, Psalm 44 is, is a really interesting psalm. This is the psalm that Paul quotes in Romans 8 when, when he speaks of how God's people are like sheep led to the slaughter. And, and in Psalm 44, you seem to be dealing with believing members of the faithful Old Covenant remnant. People who know the Lord, people who have, as best they can, been true to God's covenant, and, and people who are really wanting to walk with God. And, and yet, they are being persecuted, and they seem to be suffering, and, and they are in great difficulty. And so, for instance, uh, the, the psalmist prays for this group of people uh, down in verse 17 of Psalm 44. He says, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. So given the state of the nation of Israel, the way that the nation was often unfaithful to the covenant, I'm inclined to think that this psalmist is speaking on behalf of of a group of people that he identifies with who have been faithful to the Lord and they're faithful to the Lord's King and yet because the the broader nation has been unfaithful, this faithful group is suffering with the nation as a whole. They're all in difficulty together. And then uh, he, he continues in verse 18, our heart has not turned back nor have our steps departed from your way. So he's saying we've tried to walk faithfully in, in your ways. And then he says in verse 19, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. So they're threatened by their enemies. They're suffering to some degree the curses of the covenant because of the unfaithfulness of the nation at large. And they're crying out to the Lord for deliverance. They, this this uh, speaker continues on behalf of this faithful remnant in verse 21, verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out, spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. And then in verse 22, this is the part that Paul quotes in Romans 8. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, I think what he's saying is, as we are put to death, This is happening to us because we are being faithful to the Lord. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. It seems to imply that if they were to go over to the enemy, if they were to uh, agree to whatever terms the enemies offered, whether that be make sacrifices to their gods or bow down to their idols or whatever the case may be, then perhaps they could maintain their lives But their faithfulness to the Lord results in their death. And this is the way that Paul also quotes the passage in Romans 8. So this psalmist calls out to the Lord in verse 23 with this surprising and and almost, well it is, it's a daring uh, command to the Lord. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Now the psalmist knows that God does not sleep. The psalmist knows uh, that the Lord is always alert. The Lord is always attending to his people. But it seems like he's not paying attention. And, And the psalmist is trying to motivate the Lord to go into action on behalf of his people by means of this 
rather bold assertion that the Lord needs to wake up. He says there in verse 23, rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. So he's saying back in verse 17, um, we have not been false to your covenant. Now in verse uh, 23, do not reject us. Verse 24, why do you hide your face? Last night we saw in Deuteronomy 32, the Lord saying, because they've been unfaithful to me, I will hide my face from them. And this psalmist is saying, we've been faithful to you, this group that I'm with, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? And then in verse 25, um, this psalmist, who's speaking on behalf of this group of people in Psalm 44, uses the same language that we saw in Psalms 42 and 43. In verse 25 of Psalm 44, For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. And, and the language of the soul being bowed down to the, to the dust is the same language that we saw, for instance, in 43.5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? So there's this continuity between Psalms 42 and 43 and 44, and it's all dealing with these people who are under affliction. There, there's a, there's a, a broader society that is unfaithful to the Lord, and then there are wider circumstances where because of the unfaithfulness of the broader uh, covenant people, uh, the Lord is bringing judgment upon his people at the hand of enemy nations. And that's resulting in the individual speaking in Psalm 42 and 43 being separated from Jerusalem. And then the group, the faithful remnant in Psalm 44, is also suffering as a result of this. So, so the continuity in 42, 43, and 44 has to, has to do with the souls being bowed down or cast down. And the resolution to that problem comes in Psalm 45. And the resolution of the psalmist's problem will be the resolution to our problem. So just to sort of put this um, in parallel with our situation, if you're discouraged with what's going on in our culture, in your life, I would encourage you to embrace the flow of thought that, that, that works its way from Psalm 42 through Psalm 48 here. This is our hope. So, so if your soul is cast down, whether because of your personal circumstances or because of uh, broader concerns in the society or whatever, we need to do what the psalmist does. And the first thing he does is he tells himself, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. And then as he works through Psalms 42, 43, 44, when he gets to Psalm 45, he's really going to fix his eyes on the promise that God made about the future king from the line of David. So Psalm 45, the superscription reads, to the choir master, according to lilies, a mosquil of the sons of Korah, a love song. There are a lot of similarities between Psalm 45 and the Song of Songs, which also celebrates uh, the marriage of a Davidic king. And here, I think the psalmist is, is speaking in verse 1, and he says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. Uh, this language of his heart overflowing, I, I would suggest that 
that what, what this reflects is the psalmist actually meditating in his heart on the promises from earlier scripture. And as a result of that meditation, it's almost like the, the water has been put into the pot, uh, the fire has been stoked under the pot, and now the water begins to boil, and out of the overflow of that meditation on scripture, uh, ignited by the hopes that are provoked by the scripture, out of the overflow, the psalmist now speaks, and he's addressing these verses in verse 1 to the king, and he says to the king there in verse 2, you are the most handsome of the sons of men, uh, the most handsome of the sons of Adam. And, and I think that, that what the psalmist is communicating is that the, the, the desired, the hoped for future king of Israel is the one for whom they all long. And, and when that king appears, he will be the one that, that everyone has hoped for. Uh, there, there's some, some overtones, perhaps, of the way that David was described as being a handsome youth back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 12. And then he continues there in verse 2, Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. And then uh, the psalmist, as he contemplates God's promises, and as he, as he thinks about the future king, he responds the way that we often respond when we are watching something spectacular. Um, several years ago, I was uh, with my wife, and, and we were, uh, I was preparing to preach Psalm 45. We were on a trip, and uh, the night before I preached in the hotel room, we turned on the Winter Olympics, and we saw uh, these, these Olympians uh, accomplishing these feats of athleticism that were amazing, and our hearts couldn't help but cheer them on. And it, it just spontaneously rose up within us. And that's what, the, what, what happens with the psalmist here as he's thinking about the king. And it's as though he begins to cheer the king on. And he says in verse 3, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. So the psalmist, as he, as he meditates on scripture and his heart begins to overflow with a pleasing theme and he begins to address these verses to the king, what he does is cheer the king on to victory. And, it, and it's the victory of God as the king conquers all his enemies. And then he says these remarkable words in verses 5 uh, through 7 that are quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. And in Hebrews chapter 1, um, the author of Hebrews um, says that the Lord, God himself, speaks these words to the Lord Jesus. And here, the psalmist goes seamlessly from addressing the king in verses 3 through 5 to continuing to address the king in verse 6. And he says in verse 6, your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. Now, I just want to pause here and ponder this remarkable utterance from the Old Testament with you for just a moment. Um, if you were to ask me the question, do you think that the son of Korah who composed this psalm understood that when the future Messiah came, he would come as Yahweh incarnate, as 
the, the Word, the eternal uh, second person of the Godhead, made flesh. My response to that is, I don't know. I don't know. And the reason I want to answer that way is because even in the New Testament, the guys that, that followed Jesus, the guys that concluded Jesus is the Messiah, he's the, he's the anointed one, when they see him do things that only God can do, like they're on the boat with him in Mark 4, and he's asleep in the boat, and there's a storm, and he gets up and calms the storm. Their response is not, well, of course. Remember Psalm 45, 6? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Remember Isaiah 9. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. We've been looking for a Messiah that is God incarnate. No, that's not how they respond, is it? Their response is, who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? It's like they have to get their heads around the idea that this man is actually God. And they do get their heads around it, but I think it's, I think it's something that is revealed in the progress of Revelation. And it's, it's like a new, a new development as God reveals himself to his people. Well, how then would I explain Psalm 45? What does this mean? I would suggest that this goes back to concepts like Genesis 1, where God grants his own dominion to Adam, who is made in his own image and likeness. So that Adam is like the visible representation of the authority and presence and reign of the invisible God. And and in a sense, Adam is the son of God. And I would suggest that those kinds of associations and connotations are at work when the Lord says to David... Um, I will raise up your seed after you, and he will be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. This is an an Adamic kind of relationship. And then it seems that there is this association between the, the throne of the Davidic king in Jerusalem and the throne of the heavenly king. So that the the throne of God is reflected on earth as the throne of David. David is the, the Davidic king is God's king. And so God's reign, God's dominion is being exercised from that throne. And I think that the psalmist is bringing these things together along those lines. Now, if the psalmist were to watch, if he were to get to to see what happens, and then he sees the Lord Jesus come as God incarnate, I think he would say, wonderful. (laughs) Well, naturally, and this fits with what I wrote. Uh, But I don't, I'm not inclined to think That if we had asked the psalmist when he wrote this psalm, are you saying that God's going to come in the flesh? I think he would have said, can you back that up and run that by me again? Can you slow that down and and say those words again and let me try to process what you're... I I don't think that he would have uh, fully been able to put that together. But I I could be wrong. At any rate, um, there's this close association in many texts in the Old Testament between God and the future king from David's line, and that close association certainly fits perfectly with the way that the word of the father becomes flesh as the the descendant of David, the seed of David. So as the psalm continues, what they celebrate is the way that this king, who represents God, enters into a marital covenant, and remarkably, the marital covenant in Psalm 45 seems to be a marriage to a Gentile bride. And, you know, in the psalmist's day, we know that Solomon married foreign women, and we know that it was a culture where if you wanted to establish peace with a neighboring culture, uh, you, would, you would arrange a, a, a wedding that would involve a descendant of, 
the king of one land and the, the, you know, let's say the daughter of the king of the neighboring people with the son of the king of this people and they come together in marriage and that way we don't want to fight each other because we don't want to kill each other's grandchildren and, and so you establish peace this way. Uh, that, that ancient Near Eastern Old Covenant scenario seems to be spoken of here as the bride is urged in, in verse 10, for instance, forget your people and your father's house and the king will desire your beauty. And then in verse 16, in place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. So as this Gentile bride is wed to the king of Israel, she's urged, forget about your people and uh, in, give yourself to this marriage and the Lord is going to make your descendants reign over all the earth. Okay, now let, let's think about the flow of thought here. Cast down in soul, Psalm 42, Psalm 43, Psalm 44, difficulty. And then the king comes and he enters into this marital covenant. And, and then in Psalm 46, this is, this is what we might call an apocalyptic psalm. It's an end of the world. Apocalyptic literature has to do with the end of the world. Listen to, listen to what happens after the king's wedding in Psalm 46 to the choir master of the sons of Korah, Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Now, when in the Bible is the earth going to give way? And when in the Bible will the mountains be moved into into the world? I mean, in, in the book of Revelation, one of the I believe it's at one of the trumpet blasts, something like a great mountain was thrown into the sea. And then there's this tsunami-like upheaval in creation. The psalm continues, verse 3, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And then before we read verse 4, let me note, in the historical city of Jerusalem, down to this very day, there is not a river that runs through that town. And there never was in in the... in ancient times. But it, a, a number of places in the Old Testament, the New Jerusalem is described as having a river that, that in some places comes from the temple. So we see in, here in Psalm 46.4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. We see the same thing in Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47, the New Jerusalem, the New Temple, which I think symbolizes the new heavens and new earth, there's going to be this river that flows from the temple. You see the same thing in Revelation chapter 22. So I think that Psalm 46 is talking about the same things those other passages are talking about. This is the new Jerusalem that we're talking about. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. You know, in Revelation uh, 22, it says the dwelling of God will be with man. And there will be no temple in the city, for God and the Lamb are its temple. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, sounds like Psalm 2, verse 1. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. So all through history, the, the, the peoples have been plotting their vanity against the Lord and against his Messiah. And we finally come to the moment where the Lord utters his voice and the earth melts and all of the rebellion is over. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. 
And at this point, it's almost like the psalmist invites us to survey the outcome of history. He says there in verse verse 8, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. It's like the psalmist says, consider what it's going to be like after the second coming. When, When the Lord Jesus comes to consummate the wedding feast of the Lamb and defeats all his enemies... Verse 9, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. All the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, as Nathan was sent to David with the promises, he, he, one, of the, one of the lines in the promise is, violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. So there's going to be no more enmity, no more conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent when this king reigns. And, and in the prophets, you know, Isaiah chapter 2, for instance, they will beat their swords into plowshares and, and their spears into pruning hooks because you won't need weapons anymore. And this is not the kind of situation that we're dealing with where we have dreamers who think that we don't need weapons now. We actually do need weapons now. And the reason we need weapons now is because people's hearts have not been fundamentally changed. It's, it, it's, it's not the situation that it's going to be then where anyone whose heart hasn't been changed is going to be consigned to the lake of fire. And everyone whose heart has been changed is going to be totally free from any desire to steal or to plunder or to conquer or to, to in any way violate or do, or do violence against his neighbor. On that day, on that day, there'll be no more, more, no more need of weapons. And then verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. And you can think of that refrain in, in the early chapters of Isaiah, the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. And, and it's as though the day has finally come when God has established his end time kingdom over the earth. I will be exalted in the earth. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It's as though that end time conquest is applied to the present day reality. Because this is what we hope for, we know the Lord is with us now. And he's our fortress now. And he is going to come and establish his kingdom. So look at the progression from cast down soul to contemplation of the king who is to come. And then to the end of the world victory. And it continues in Psalm 47. Psalm 47 to the choir master. A psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, before I read this. Let me just invite, invite you to consider what do you expect to follow the coming of the king and his end time conquest? Well, it's going to be a worldwide celebration of the king, isn't it? It's going to be a worldwide worship service with everybody rejoicing over the Lord Jesus. Verse 1, clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy for the Lord The Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. Now, this sounds like the conquest of Canaan. 
But the conquest of Canaan simply typifies the conquest of the whole world. So, so in, in the Bible's big story, God gives dominion over all the dry lands to Adam in the garden. And, and he is to work and keep the garden, and he is to fill and subdue the earth. So he's to, I think he's to make the whole world like the Garden of Eden. And what he does is he rebels against the Lord, and he surrenders dominion. And it's as though the Lord says, I'm not done with this project. I'm going to take myself a new Adam, the nation of Israel... And I'm going to put them into like a new Eden. And once again, they're going to be, have this responsibility to expand its borders and extend my reign over my world. And the nation of Israel, the new Adam and the new Eden with a new covenant, with a new opportunity to, to cause the dry lands to be covered with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, they do the same thing the first Adam did. They rebel, they transgress, they break the covenant, and they get themselves cast out of that, that foretaste of, well, that land of promise, which really just points forward to the new heaven and new earth. And, and this, this attempt is going to be accomplished by the Lord Jesus, who's going to come, and he's going to conquer all his enemies, and he's going to exercise Adamic, lordly dominion over all the earth, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, the name of the Lord will be praised. And that's what's being celebrated here as they look back to the conquest of Canaan, to look forward to the conquest of the whole world. In those words in verse 3, he subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves, Selah. It sounds like the land, but it's pointing forward to everything. Verse 5, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather. Listen to this. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. That's the fulfillment of Genesis 12.3. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed in you. The, the princes of the peoples, foreign peoples, gather as the people of the God of Abraham. This is a statement that the Gentiles will become the people of God, which is also what we find at the end of the book of Isaiah. And it's exactly what happens in the New Testament as the gospel goes to the Gentiles. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So, Cast down soul, contemplation of the coming king, Psalm 45, end of the world, Psalm 46, worldwide celebration of the reign of God through the future king from David's line in Psalm 47, followed by Psalm 48, which to, to us, I think initially, is going to feel foreign. Because what's going to happen in Psalm 48 is, is they're, go they're going to talk about the glory of God by talking about the glory of the city. And, and this is a little bit foreign to us because it's, it's not the way we think about things. Although I think there is, if, if you think about it, there is a correspondence to the way that we would, if, if, if we were to take a visitor to Washington, D.C., and you were to see all of those beautiful buildings and all the manicured lawns and the, the magnificent statuary and such, 
You might say something like, this is the glory of the United States of America. Or if you were to pay a visit to Rome and you were to see St. Peter's Basilica and you were to see all of the, the, the Vatican Museum and all the magnificence that is there, you might say something like, this is the glory of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, that's the kind of thing that's happening here in Psalm 48 as they celebrate the victory of God. Psalm 48, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. So they're talking about the city being the joy of all the earth. They're talking about the mountain being, being holy. But really what makes it good is the presence of God there. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. So the Lord himself is the fortress. And he makes himself known as a fortress within the new Jerusalem. Verse 4, for behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. It's almost as though the psalmist is anticipating the scene of Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, where you have this final rebellion, and, and Satan is released from his, his um, imprisonment, and he goes and he deceives the nations, and Gog of Magog, and all of these these troops and hordes of soldiers come marching up to attack the Lord and it's like they behold the glory of the city and as soon as they see it, they are astounded. They were in panic, verse 5. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. So no sooner do they assemble than they are put to flight and overawed by the majesty of God. Verse 8, as we have heard, I think the psalmist is saying something like, as has been promised in the scriptures, so we have seen, so it has come to pass, in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever, Selah. Verse 9, we have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. Now, I think that um, when the psalmist says this, what he's, what he's getting at is the way that um, the temple was like a, a, a symbolic representation of the world that God made. And so the psalmist has come into the temple, and in the temple, he has contemplated and meditated upon the very character of God. And the, the contemplation of God's character in the symbolic representation of God's world, leads him to say what he says here. Verse 10, as your name, O God, and the reference to God's name, you know, recalls the way that in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord passed by Moses and he proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, um, uh, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. And this is that statement that one of those ways of saying 
The glory of God is going to fill the world. The fullness of the earth is God's glory. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. And then the psalmist invites his audience. He says in verse 12, Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Now, this is not a confused theological statement that somehow equates the city with God. No, it's a statement that says the glory of God is on display in the city. And as you behold the new Jerusalem, as you see what it is that God has achieved, you come to know him. You come to know his character. You come to know his, his unique and unparalleled being. You, you come to know him as the God of steadfast love and truth. The God who both forgives and who upholds righteousness. This is God, verse 14, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. If we were to continue into Psalm 49, what we would find is, is a kind of reflection that I think responds to this flow of thought in Psalms 42 through 48. And, and it's as though in Psalm 49, the psalmist invites people to learn wisdom. 49.1, hear this all peoples. Give ear all inhabitants of the world, both high and low, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. It's as though the psalmist is teaching people in his own generation how to respond to what we've just seen in this flow of thought that moves from despair in 42 through 44 to the coming of the king and his marriage to the, the end of the world in Psalm 46, the worldwide celebration in 47, and then the new Jerusalem in 48. And it's like 49 says... Learn wisdom. Respond rightly to this revelation of who God is and what he has done. I'm going to pause now. It's 1014, and I think we're supposed to knock off at about 1020 or so. And I want to see if you have anything that you want to follow up on, any comments, questions, thoughts, or things you'd like to discuss or pursue. Anything you'd like to uh, push me on, challenge me on. Uh, ask about anything you'd like to, to discuss. Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that what you have, it, it's it's almost as though the whole story of the Bible is some, you know, in terms of uh, the, the expectation for the coming king and then what he's going to accomplish, what he's going to bring about. It's almost as though that whole thing is put in right here. And I, I'm inclined to think that here in uh, the early part of book two, what's happening is the psalmist is, is kind of tracking again with the narrative of Samuel. So if you remember in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, they bring the ark of of the covenant into Jerusalem. And then in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, the Lord gives those promises to David that are really in response to David's desire to build the temple. David wants to build the temple, and the Lord says, no, David, you can't build the temple, but I'm going to make these great promises to you about the seed that I'm going to raise up from your line. 
And then in 2 Samuel 8 through 10, um, David starts conquering in every direction. Things are going great. They're conquering to the north, to the south, to the west. I mean, David is subduing the nations around the land of Israel. And then comes 2 Samuel chapter 11 um, when he sins with Bathsheba. And you turn the page here in the Psalter and there's Psalm 51. So I, I think that here in the Psalter, it's almost like they're, they're getting at what they were hoping for when David was doing well prior to his sin with, with Bathsheba. I think, I think that's the, sort of the rationale for what's going on here. That's a great question. Other things you'd like to discuss or pursue? You're all just perfectly satisfied, totally convinced. Yeah. Um, I, I think that what we have here, it, 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 is, it is typological in the sense that it's, it's modeled not only on the way that Moses brought the people out of Egypt and then Joshua led them to conquer the land, also on the way that David was established as king and then he began to conquer. And these earlier patterns are being used as a kind of paradigm or template that is projected into the future regarding what they hope for and expect the future king from David's line to accomplish in order to fulfill God's purposes and to to bring to completion what God has promised. All right, well, if you're happy, I'm happy. Let's let's pray together, and uh, we'll, we'll take a break and come back together for worship in a few moments. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these promises that you give us in the Bible about the way that the king from David's line will reign over all the earth. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us wisdom in response to what you've revealed about this king. We pray, Lord, that you would cause our hearts to overflow with a pleasing theme. We pray that you would make us people who are always ready to hope, people who are always ready to love, people who are always ready to do what we can to make disciples of all nations, to make it so that your glory covers the dry lands as the waters cover the sea. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to live now as we will wish we had lived when Christ comes. And we pray that you would make us faithful to him and enable us to uh, worship you through Christ by the Spirit with the joy, the energy, the devotion, the commitment that you deserve. Lord, we pray that you would summon forth from us devotion to our King, and we ask it in his name. Amen.